The following is an archived podcast presented by the Branson and Hudson Foundation for Podcast Recovery. This podcast is entitled The Golden Age of Hollywood. It is the first and only episode of the podcast. Welcome to episode one. Once upon a time, in the most magical place in the world, there was something happening that was truly remarkable. The genesis of the glitz and the glamour, when the stars shine their brightest, and when the silver screen and the Nickelodeon became an entire reality. A time certainly without fancy computer effects, without video cameras, and a time without multiracial on-screen kisses. Yes, of course, this was the golden age of Hollywood. And who better to take us back in time but the men who made it a possibility. My name is Bing Cheatham, film producer, director, and even actor. I am joined by my longtime friends, Fazoli Tremboni and Bertrand Rolston, to discuss how there really is no business like show business. My dear friends, it is wonderful to see you. Bing, it's been a pleasure. It's been so long. I'm so happy to be here. Gentlemen... It's been a long time. Too long. It's been ages. It's too been far long. too long, for sure. Can I offer you a cigarette? I, oh, I, you know me, I quit smoking. All right, go ahead and uh, if ago. you got a light, light it up for me there. I'll take that. It's okay with me. I keep telling my wife. I keep telling my wife I'm going to quit. You know, when you're this old, I'm, a couple old guys like us, you know, there's really no point anymore, you know? shocking what? to me to see that you're still married. You know, I, you know, despite all the ups and downs and the trials and tribulations, uh, our marriage stayed strong simply because she minded, you know, I, I told her to mind her own business. After the 57 times she caught you cheating on her, you old dog. It's part of show business. I always just say I'm rehearsing. Three sheets to the wind, boy. Glug, glug, glug. You know, we talk about old Hollywood, and we talk about, you know, what we were like back then. And I know uh, us three uh, all originally met on a, uh, uh, the set of an excellent film, a film you, mm-hmm. you uh, directed, Bing, uh, called The Young mm-hmm. King. Yes. And I just... Oh, this brings uh, me Bertrand back. Bertrand played you uh, the best Alexander the Great. I'd just like to get that out of the way, you know, because even though I am an actor, oh, I'm a fan, so first and foremost. I, I, I really appreciate that coming from you. I, I enjoyed your work beyond our project here, and it was fantastic to work with you. It stayed with me my whole life. Boy, what fun. It, it, what we fun. just piled around. It was a lot of fun on set. That was a three-year shoot. It took forever, but, you know, when it came out, you know, the, the film was definitely reviewed. Now, this film mm. was our vision. This was our vision to bring it together in come together unite and this is what truly made us friends big the film itself it cost uh, roughly 80 million dollars at the time it was my big break i can never forgive it at the time how did we even scrounge up that that dollar well you know me (laughs) i had a good word with the men at the studio i had honcho they liked you boys and uh we made it happen unfortunately i just talked to a lot of dentists that's what I did. <laughs> I got checked out by them, too. I had the best teeth of my life after that fundraiser. It was pretty. They, I remember how white they were. It was almost, you know, disgusting. Well, you always had to look great for the screen. And unfortunately, the movie yeah. netted a mere $112,000 worldwide. But you know, but... I remember you had to get special uh, lenses for, for those those teeth of mine. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really... You know, because, you know, you were playing Alexander, and you looked absolutely wonderful. You know, I never thought there'd be a red-headed Alexander the Great, but you made it work. You know, I'm a natural Italian, kind of from the area, and I got that olive skin, you know. I got to play the villain, right? I'm used to playing villains. It was my first big break playing Memnon of Rhodes. That was somebody the I had to look up in the, uh, the encyclopedia. Yeah, sure. Dastardly. And I, they made you know, me grow that, that big mustache, th- and I was twirling it all the time. And, you know, I'm just a kid from, you know, the Bronx. Used to playing stickball. Next thing I know, I'm in Hollywood. Next thing I know, you know, I'm working for 10 years. Next thing I know, I'm playing opposite of Bert, Bertrand Ralston, one of the greatest actors of a time. Well, it didn't take me that... It wasn't uh, 
flash in the pan like you, well, he, he rose and started pretty quickly. I mean, I'm from, I'm from Otterhead, Minnesota, right? And that was a big manufacturing town. There was, that's where the spam plant is. And I got all the fumes. And my father, who was never there, uh, but my mother was there, and I think I can credit everything, this acting biz, all to her. She, you see, she was a prostitute. And a the beautiful best woman. one I've ever seen, mind you, I can say. Your mother was you know, a beautiful. Art woman. isn't born in comfort, you know. It's mm. born in, it, 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 art comes from, you know, all the trials and tribulations. You know, I had to learn all about the method acting and all that stuff after my first ten years because, you know, I was basically getting paid to get beat on stage. I had one of those faces, and uh, you, you'll learn about Constantine, Flanisovsky, and all them guys. And, and, and wow, I'm just happy to be part of the discussion, you know? Yeah, Vaudeville's the great place to start. I, uh, I, I was there with you. They used to put me in suitcases and bang me around. My, my troop was called <laughs> the Flying Finagles. <laughs> our biggest, our biggest crowd pleaser was possibly the most lethal in my life. You see... They got a shark tank. How they got the sharks is beyond beyond my knowledge, because we had no money. But what they did to little old me, I was nigh 12 years old at the time, they covered me completely in hickory-smoked barbecue sauce, and then they dumped me in that shark tank, and they, oh, wow, they laughed, and I did not give them any sort of indication of fear or anything. I just swam away. Stared them straight in the eyes till the shark respected you. Thank. That's when I knew I had the chops. See, before it was just a way to make make money for for my bagel. Daily bagel. Now, Bertrand (laughs) Rolston was one of the finest actors I've ever known. Uh, Thank you very much. When I first worked with him, he was in the film I was directing, The Island of the Voodoo Savages. And I remember ah. the first day of shooting was the grand scene where you're put in the great cauldron as the savages danced around as they boiled you over the fire. And we used a real cauldron and a real fire. And due to your experience oh. at the Valdeville, you didn't even flinch. It was merely natural for you. And I knew well. this is my man. <laughs> it was acting. <laughs> oh, but it was so much more. I, I remember. I still, when you brought that up just now, I, ooh, I, I kind of leapt from my seat a little bit. <laughs> well, you're playing. I... You're playing the great Professor Birchwald on his expedition, mm-hmm. and you became him in the flesh. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. I, I I remember that scene, and I remember all those savages jumping around. I remember. I I, I knew most of the savages. Yes, I played. At the time. You, I had you play one of them. Right, you know, well, I didn't make the final cut of the movie. You didn't use oh, my no. thing because I kept sneezing. Was uh, that you? And, you know, there was a I great note. I, yes, it was. It I, was him. I, it was very early in my Fortune. career. I he didn't get cut. a lot of speaking roles. You know, no. I kind of got tricked when I first got to Hollywood. They said, you know, you can't join the Screen Actors Guild. You have to join the Catholic Screen Actors Guild. And that was me, uh, the Italians, and the Irish were just forced to this. Well, that's often you know, where we got many of our extras because they were right, cost-effective. And, and, you know... Back then, Irish and Italian people weren't allowed to play regular white people in movies. So, you know, we usually got stuck to Native Americans, savages, basically anything. You cut and dry Persian, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember the first time they brought us to that Catholic Screen Actors Guild, which was uh, actually the meeting place was at the Augang, the old Little Rascals hideout, where they would bang on, they would have like a gavel that was made out of a bean (laughs) can, right? And so we would be there and try to be like, we need to get taken seriously as actors and all this. And, and uh, we were only allowed to have a union on the stipulation that the producers were allowed to sit in a balcony around us and laugh and throw peanuts at us. So it was a really demeaning experience and all this. But, you know, we were able to get a few, you know, speaking roles later on, probably in around the 50s, when they made it illegal to attack Italians on site. Well, we used quite a bit of you, gentlemen, when we were filming The Young King. Uh... I remember all of the slaves in the film were played by factory workers most often. Uh, actually, an average yes. of 11 men died in every scene we shot. Uh, even the stage it was sets a bloodbath. Where, the, where the leads were just talking, we'd lose men. Um, it was really a, quite a grueling process to make that film. The first battle scene we filmed, we 
lost a, what was it, uh, 247 horses died during the filming of the first battle scene. You know, and I take part of the responsibility for that because no one told me that the... No one told me the bows and arrows weren't fake. So I was just shooting all over the place. But that was on purpose. I had to look realistic. Yeah. I mean, we well, also lost, I wish you were, we lost 43 I mean, I elephants. I took it quite hard. I, I think I definitely did. It may have made a better movie because I did develop, I think, what is now as, uh, known as post-traumatic stress disorder. But I was just like, even when we weren't even filming, I was just taking that bow and arrow. You kept feeding me arrows, and I would just lob them into the sky, laughing my ass off. And, you know, it's still... Like, still haunts me yeah i thought they were special effect arrows too i just lost track of how far technology has gone well we purpose Before i know it bow, bow and arrow technology is so advanced nowadays lots of people died in front of me people i had just bonded <clears throat> with for 30 seconds i'd never met before i was determined to be lifelong acting friends with them <laughs> however well you knew the sacrifices that had to be made that's but when I truly learned that lesson. On that the plus a- side, we ate fresh horse every night. And elephant. We lost those 43 elephants. Oh, those damned horses. And then... I can still... <laughs> they're still picking them out of my teeth at this day. <laughs> the broken legs. Jeez. And the cracking and sound made. whiskey just to keep warm. The fires didn't even work anymore after one point when we were in the mountain scenes. Well, well, what was really frustrating is it's really hard after that movie to just find anywhere that'll sell your horse. Well, there was there was laws changed in, after the filming of that movie. Um, well, also, you cannot forget all of the dozens of apes we dressed up. They were drowned when one of the prop ships sank, unfortunately. Didn't we try to dress them up as humans... We that did first, because uh, we were short. We were short on uh, Irishmen and Italians, so we said. Well, back, back, the next I best remember thing by is then, Nick. you know, I, I was kind of, you know, I was coming up in the ranks a little bit then, and you know, my agent, you know, you know, he was uh, uh, Lou Wasserman. He actually, you know, fought for me to get a speaking role real hard uh, because you know uh, the audiences were just sick of seeing me get my ass kicked and not saying anything over and over again. You know, I'd get invited to dinner parties, and you know how, like, those Bing Crosby guys and stuff, if they're at a dinner party, they get asked to sing? The host would just go be like, oh, uh, Fazoli, come over here. Let me kick your ass a little bit. Everyone's going to love it. And everybody starts clapping and doing this. Come on, let them kick your ass, because that's what I was famous for. I just always got my ass kicked on screen. And so, you know, they kicked my stuntman. ass for five. T- I was not a stuntman. You wouldn't I believe not. it. I, I was remember. Not they just beat. I, I was just could take a punch. The New Year's Eve party. When Shirley MacLaine kicked you square in the keister. Beautiful. It was my honor. Heck, I wanted that foot in my keister, too. <laughs> if I had the chance dog. to ask her, I would have dug a little in her ear, you know, mm. and put a little flea in there. Easy <laughs> now. Uh, oh, oh. <clears throat> Sorry. May she we ran into rest in peace, the survived by her 24 grandchildren. The young Shit. king had laws changed about horses, but that wasn't the only thing we ran into uh, posthumously of the film. Uh, for instance, mm-hmm. we used asbestos to line the coats of the soldiers when we shot the mountain scenes. And My there idea. was many. It was a fine idea, and I would not change it. The studio ran into many legal issues years later, but they were disputed by our excellent Jewish lawyers, and well. That was that. But then there was also more troubling, more, how would you say, well, complicated parts of the film. The orgy scenes would take a month to film alone. Those Um, were great. We had to get plenty of footage, I remember. Oh, you enjoyed it quite a bit. I'd be sweating That's from right. head to toe, you know. I'd be just sweating from head to toe, and you'd take a 15-minute break, and they'd just make me eat so many bananas for the potassium and, you know, just kind of drink a little bit so I last longer, and then we'd just be right back out there. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, bang, baby, they're never going to let us air this, but you really insisted on that. Well, You're those like, scenes say- we shot, those scenes we shot were on an ice-cold set because we couldn't have the, the mud melting, uh, so we had to... Use a nice cold set, and we had to apply oil to all the actors to give an effect of sweat because actual sweat was freezing to their skin. And it was 
quite phenomenal. I'd never seen anything like it, but we made do. It was very hard to maintain an erection during that, even though you told us it wasn't necessary. It was not any problem. It was no problem for, for uh, you know, Bertrand here, but you know how he is. The best. It was acting. It wasn't a real erection. It was just... Oh, my God. Up. That's why you're a pro, man. That's why. Sorry. I didn't want to reveal it here because now every pornographer this side of the San Andreas is going to be after this old fart. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll <laughs> never... special scenes. They'll never get to you because that's not true art. That's just... That's just that's smut. Right. And I have a good agent. I have a splendid agent. Also, all of the blood was real on the film. I won't say any more on the matter, but it was real. Real good. <laughs> it smelled awful sometimes during those battle yeah. scenes. Uh, you know, especially since those arrows would just be chopping people down, and we didn't really need any extra blood. But you just kept slopping it out there to the point where it was like ankle deep, you know? Right, I remember uh, making a cut. <clears throat> in the middle of one of these battle scenes that you had so... And I was dutiful and respectful of your direction. And I slaughtered the actor in front of me. And I stuck it right in his jowls and it spilled all over the damn ground like a velvet carpet. And I stood and looked at you uh, with this blade in this man... And I said, is this okay? Is this real? <laughs> and then I looked at you. I looked at... Is this okay? I looked you directly in the eye with the most emotional intent. And I said, cut. And then, and then I remember right after that, you didn't answer what he said, and you got on your big speaker thing and you yelled, that's lunch, people! And Birch had stood there for, for a good five minutes, just almost afraid to remove that blade that from man's him. Blood. <laughs> we and never I, talked about that my, again. We never talked about it again. I took my free hand and I <laughs> and I pointed at the guy like it was like this was our lunch after you said. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember everyone in in the re, in the immediate area just started laughing. We all and laugh. I'd never felt so good in my life. And then I you realized gotta laugh. it was real. And you that's why laugh. that's why you've always been a legend. That's why now you gotta laugh. I remember we had one of those battle scenes, and I had never seen you this mad at me before. And I believe it was the chariot scenes when Alexander's just leaving Macedonia. He starts stepping into Asia Minor. And uh, fighting with uh, Memnon the first time, right? And I kind of catch him by surprise. I'm able to cut down like 10 Greek guys with my bows and arrows standing on the mountain. And I remember I was practicing my shooting all day. And I lined up like 10 perfect headshots, 10 extras all dead. And I, uh, I, I, I hit my mock and I looked to the left like I was supposed to. And I said, line! And I'd never seen you that mad at me. You spent the whole day... You put me in the box. I didn't know. I thought that was a prison thing, but I was there for about 24 hours. Well, uh, that was a big heap of luggage. Burton was always so courteous and patient with uh, his colleagues. You know, over 60,000 people were used in the film The Young King. Um, the female lead at the time was only 16. She played Alexander's lover, Hephaestion, who was in real life was a man, but that would never pass in Hollywood then, thank God. But he was very nice, very, very, uh, very comforting to her. More than comforting, I would say. They're very close. But I won't digress into that. But I pleaded to the studios to recruit her as a girl. I, I remember it took a lot of convincing, but I told them that she was the one. And like, her age, her age, I... She's too old. Boy. She's too old, they told you. That's you right. Said 16 I remember, is not too old. They, was, they insisted she'd be 13 years old. But. In order to kiss her on screen, the government made you legally adopt her. That's right. I had to. <laughs> the paperwork was, was too big, too large, too long. It took such a long amount of time, but I would do anything for my art and my friends. 
And I got through. I did it. When we made this picture, we made it as best as we could. My magnum opus, Sorry. I would say. It was a good. It you, was a good flick. It was a good flick. Good flick. She, she reminds me of. Oh, since we're getting into old, old baggage. <laughs> since we're getting into hey, old, my old, old yeah. stories. I used to date a girl who was the daughter of Gregor B. DeMille, mm-hmm. who Gregor being the son of Cecil B. DeMille. So you could say Not I was bad. brushing against grace, uh, against <laughs> uh, gods, as it were. So she told me An a absolute story. knockout, that girl. Absolute knockout. <laughs> I swear she knocked me out once with just her looks. And so she told me a story about her mother, Gregor B. DeMille, and her mother, Camilla, Camilla B. DeMille, were in a film together, a motion picture. It was to be the sequel to Jazz Singer, Jazz Singer 2. Al uh, Jolson comes back, and you know, you know the old plot. He comes back, his brother was killed, and he wants revenge. And here's the thing about old cameras back then. They were 500 pounds. They had to be lit by bulbs as big as, you know, those oh, 10 I know. There are several men to take those around. Quite a pain. And they were powerful, and they could burn you. They, but they decided to use them anyway because that's all they had. So, this Camila, she had to wear, for her role, blackface to attract Al Jorson as she was a, a damsel in distress. And, you know, that's, that's the only way he could recognize his lovers were in blackface. And they did so many takes, so many, at least... 200, I, I assume. And it burned the, the lamp, this industrial lamp, burned the blackface onto her face. <laughs> and so it was permanently affixed to her face. And then nope. she died. Right, but for, she was a, few, killed. for a few moments, you, you know. True story. I saw some, some lady in the news, but uh, that was the first Dolezal. Well, what? what? As we say uh, in the business, just, just, uh, my grandkids. Never mind. The show must go on. TV. Show must go on, as it always has and always will. Um, speaking of previous lovers, that made me think of. Well, Bertrand, you spoke a little bit of your origins, and I guess it may be a bit nostalgic. As you know, I. Oh, yes. I came from a poor family in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, my father was. A radio repairman Great and my time. mother, my mother, well, she was the real hot honcho. She would wrangle me and my six big brothers, a wild bunch of filthy boys with a taste for adventure. Good American-blooded boys. And I remember one weekend, I was on a date with my high school darling, Shirley. And we went and we saw King Kong. I was in love. I saw that great gorilla fall in love himself with that beautiful blonde, Faye Ray. And I said to myself, Jiminy, now that's my calling. I gotta make the talkies, damn it. And the next week, I kissed my sweetheart, and I said, Sorry, babe, I gotta make tracks. I bought a one-way ticket bus ticket to the City of Angels, and the rest is history. Now, when you said you fall in love, did you fall in love with the gorilla or the high school sweetheart? I was confused. I, I thought you said you fell in love with well, the gorilla. Well, as an Italian, of course you'd think I fell in love with the gorilla, because that's what you fall in love with. Hey, Maron! He's not wrong. Listen, you know, I may be just, you know, I'm just a regular kid from the Bronx, regardless of where I am at now, you know. I, you know, I don't want to get into my whole backstory and nothing like that. Nobody cares to hear it, but, you know, you know, I went from, you know, playing stickball with my best friend Regis Philbin to, you know, <laughs> having my parents shuttle me all the way to Hollywood, work as a shoeshine boy, hanging outside the MGM studios, getting flipped dimes to take my shirt off. And, you know, next thing I know, I see a, uh, I see a, uh, the son of a famous producer, right? He was like 20 years old, 
a blonde on each arm, and I'm looking at him, and, you know, back in those days, people would pay me extra if I shine my shoes with my tongue. It was like a degradation thing, but, you know, it was legal to beat Italians at the time, so I didn't question it. Uh, it was, uh, let's see, what was his name? He was that... Ah, he was that author Lowe Jr., you know, and I see him smoking cigars with his two blondes, and he looks at me, right, and he's got two blondes on each arm, and he goes, he, i never forget this, he looked at me and he said, now that kid would look good on the business end of a gladius, and everyone started laughing, right, because he was talking about killing me, and you know, I kept my head down and didn't say much. And gladiator pictures were quite the rage at the right. time. And then his producers thought that that meant that I'd be a good extra on his set, and they actually scooped me up and took me into MGM, and next thing I know, in a day, I'm an extra. You know, I kind of kept that going, but later on, we all got to laugh, because he was just talking about killing me. The guy just wanted to kill me. You know, so it's just kind of like I got into the business on, on accident, you know. It's As my first film. My first film, Jesus's Big Break. Quite the, contro- yeah, it's quite the controversy at the time. You know, I didn't know much about it. I didn't even see it. All I know is that they had to shoot the stabbing scene like four times, and I woke up in the hospital. And who were you were in the you film? Were you all right? You know, I, you know, I can't complain. You know, later on, they hooked me up on a vaudeville gig, and that was when vaudeville was dying, mind you. But uh, basically, I got paid with a bag of oranges. And what they would do is they'd just bring me on stage and have two big burly guys just beat the shit out of me with the bag of oranges, you know? And as long as the oranges didn't break, I got to take them home. <laughs> it's not a bad I deal. That. It's a living. I Some got people the got bug. far less back then in the... Yeah, you know, that's where the Flintstones line came from. It was me. I would say, it's a living, and the crowd would go nuts. Yeah, they nicked that from you. Later on, I would just sleep inside MGM Studios, showing up in executive cars, trying to get more breaks and stuff like that. And people generally didn't like that, but there's really nothing they could do. They just kicked my ass and pushed me out, but I was used to it by now. Well, eventually, I met you as an extra on some of the films I directed. As you know, before I... I believe it was Surfboard City. Surfboard City was... Wonderful. It was a wonderful picture. It was shot here in Los Angeles on the Venice Beach. At the time, it was much more cleaner. There weren't so many large bodybuilders and skateboarders and drug use. However... What um, an ensemble of bimbos you gathered for the wonderful film Surfboard City. Oh, gorgeous girls. Gorgeous girls. As Bertrand can attest to that, he had many of them. I remember I was in the studio next door working on another picture, and I would come over all the time to watch your set. I was working... Let's see, I was working on... uh, Which picture? I think I was working on... Oh, it was a light-hearted comedy. It was the same year. It was the same year. She looks like a winner... And, uh, uh, and uh, or it could have been uh, they can't find me. I'm not sure. <laughs> been... yeah, but could have been uh, the devil had a doll face. That was one of my. F- I think that was around that, that time. But that that one was a couple years later, I believe. Yeah, uh, you were drinking uh, heavily back then, but weren't we all? Uh, well, I wasn't drinking very much, but often. Well, surfboard city. <laughs> surf- frequently. Surfboard city was. Uh, the previously, uh, that was a little bit after, well, I was directing many films at the time. I was really firing them off. Many, what are called B-pictures now, before I became what is known as, more accepted as mainstream. And, well, Favoli was in many of them. Uh, Fazoli, I'm sorry. Uh, Fazoli Tremboni was in many of them. Um, including, it's all right. My name was misspelled on most credits usually. Well, a lot of the a lot of the films we made, you weren't even credited, so it didn't right. matter. If anything, I'd be like WAP number nine on right. you know you know Thug number I'd two. Be the, I'd be the I'd be the guy Rapist who number three. You know, right. Yeah, I'd so be on. the guy who crashed my hot rod cackling at uh, a nice girl, and I drive it right into a tree, and then the hero, some blonde blue eyed stud, rips me out of there and just beats the snot out of me. Well, I took pity upon you. I gave you many roles in a lot of my films. Um, Attack of the 100-Foot Hitler was one. Um, Dr. Odious in the Circus of, of Sinistrals. Um, help, I gave birth to baby Hitler. That was a, that was a good one. 
Right. And I um, remember a couple. The one line you gave me on that one is, "Ah, oh, sh- oh, nuts! I got shot again." You were very powerful. It was Classic. very emotional delivery. Uh, you're in House of the Killer Dames. Um, oh, Al Capone of Mars. You're perfect for that one. This one of the henchmen. Uh, you returned for Dr. Hitler. And as well as Pearl Harbor too. But really, I think <clears throat> really the the film that really put me on the radar as a director, as an auteur, if you will, was The Midnight Bird, starring... The Midnight Bird, I remember. The Midnight Bird, It's a great starring, flick, The Midnight Bird. I the Midnight Bird. Going, Holy moly, this is something to hang the on to. The Midnight Bird, starring Griswold Sands and Tina Lunch. And they were just, well, boy, they were just terrific to work with. They were just such a treat. And, well, for those who are listening, there's many listeners, young listeners, who probably have not seen this film. They don't watch great films these days. It is about a handsome insurance inspector. He meets a, a young bride whose wealthy husband dies in a house fire. And she says she thinks there's foul play. <laughs> but our insurance man is suspicious of her. What he doesn't see coming is when he begins to fall for the dame. And you know the rest of the story. It's a great now, film. It was nominated for several... Oscars, but they were all redacted when it was discovered that my lead, Griswold Sands, was a staunch communist, which was found out because of you. My Fizzoli. bet. Well, that's my bet. Listen, you know, everyone, it's hard to find a job. I was struggling. I, had I wouldn't a say it was your bad that you were having a communication. In my defense, a discussion with the federal. Bureau of Investigation. In my defense, for many just, years, you know, you know, just you know, in my defense, you know, when a guy asks you to lunch, government and otherwise, you say yes. You don't get any jobs by saying no in the city. All right, I had a lunch. You know, I really liked the attention. Well, I he said something he liked to hear. He kept talking to me, and it, it, and another thing in my defense, I literally said every single person I worked with was a communist. Eventually, they just stopped talking to me. But you know, I really loved the free lunches. They'd come and they'd fill me up garlic bread, ask appetizers, chocolate lava cake, anything I wanted. You know, and every single time they're like, "Who do you got for us this week?" And I just say, "Whoever I just worked with, or whoever hit me too hard." You know, that Arthur Lowe Jr. I got him locked up for twelve years. He was my first guy because he used to just beat the snot out of me. You know, and and you know. For the first five years, he wouldn't even pay me for it until my lawyers got involved once they made it illegal to beat Italians. And then they're like, hey, if you like beating this guy so much, you're going to have to start paying him, you know? But, you know, I got him put away to Rikers for 12 years, and, you know, you don't see him complaining because he died in jail. But still, I just like the attention. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the attention. <laughs> uh, so I got so you. much free food. From just saying who was a communist, it's fine. It's not a big deal, really, because yeah, they don't get to work no more. But some other kid gets a start. I gave it. I gave lots of kids this start in this town, and I finally got speaking roles because everybody was just afraid of me. Well, at that time, things were a little bit on the rocks. It was very difficult. The studios owned everything. You know, you had MGM, you had uh, RKO, and you had your Warner Brothers, or as I like to to call them, you got your MGM, which is blow and go. Mm. You got RKO, which is suck and fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got your uh, your Warner Brothers, which is Shang Shang. <laughs> <laughs> So that became sort of a little, uh, you know, oh, there's a Shang Shang in the house, and that's right. what we knew. It was a little bit of a, a inside joke. A producer from yes. Warner Brothers, yes. you know, I you get somebody would say Shang Shang in the house, and you'd just be, you know, you know, I know what everyone's role in this room is. You know, you keep the Gentiles in front of the screen, and you let the Hymies run it behind. That's right, behind and in the dust, eat my dust. Really, really, what it was about was keeping the big wigs happy. You keep them happy. You make your films. Right. You make your art. Everyone it's gets a business, you know. We we're, we're the artists, living, you know. Right. 
And you we got forget that supply, which is the actors, the extras, the the death, you know, the the, the special effects arrows, and then you got your demand, which is all the unwashed masses who <clears throat> who I, who I really awful really people love. Really, uh, but have you left Hollywood recently? The, it's awful. Well, when they're adoring me, I love them. Back then, you could go anywhere, and you were just simply, simply a king, really. I mean, alone to begin with, in the 1950s, uh, you know, all the girls were easy because all the good men died during the war. So all the all those stupid idiots who didn't realize that they could just avoid fighting Hitler if they just appeared in a movie every once in a while, become an actor. You know, and you know, me and Ronald Reagan would just hit the speakeasies, you know, hit the malt shops, just look for women that were crying. And he'd be like, well, you want to come home with me, honey? I'm an actor. I play a fighter pilot. And then, you know, they feel less bad about being alone because they married some guy that was 17 and lied to join the military. And then they get to go sleep with Ronald Reagan. Everyone loved it. Or you could be, you could be a young actor, like, um, or a, musician like james dean and buddy holly and you famous for something like three months and then you kill yourself in a horrible accident and and then you're a legend you remember you're remembered forever for driving a motorcycle and looking at a woman i thought God. about that briefly but it just didn't seem to have a five-year plan on it you know i've been well, pushed to the inch that, of my that was life the case, so many times and i'm pretty movies. sure i'm invulnerable uh, see i'm I was fine playing, uh, you see, I was fine uh, for a while. Being typecasted at, at the time, I've been typecasted as a soda jerk. I've been in over 300 motion pictures as a soda jerk. I was the go-to. It's a lost art nowadays. For about they 60% call me, of your films, you're a soda jerk, right? They call me, that's right, jerky boy, they used to call me. But that was not my problem. I tried to get out side of my comfort zone and eventually landing on a deal with you fine gentlemen but I owe that all to my agent uh, who had a very very disturbing story to go along with that you see I was fed up by around film number 273 uh, as being a soldier since you know the silent film era and I went right to my agent's office and I said, knocked at the door. And I said, open up. I need to talk talk to you. And the secretary wasn't there. He wasn't there. And then I looked at the clock and sure enough, it was lunchtime. <laughs> so I waited. And then the sec- sure enough, the secretary returned. And I said, there you are. Where's my agent? I need to see my, my agent. And she says, I don't know, I, uh, isn't he with you? And I said, I'm right here. Where, where would I keep him, in my pocket? <laughs> and so I says, I says well, you don't give me him right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something I will never regret to you. <laughs> and then she says, uh, well, sorry, Mr. Mr. Ralston. I haven't seen him in three weeks. And I says, damn, that's the damnedest thing. But then she hands me this note, which has a secret code on it, and, you know, uh, like uh, symbols, and, you know, only he and I knew. We were friends for <laughs> a long time, and I knew exactly where he was. So I decided I would go to, the, it was a studio, studio on the Shang Shang lot, <laughs> Studio 63. And I get in there, and there's a hatch open, sure enough. And there were some crumbs leading there. He, he really liked uh, he really liked Cracker Jack, so I followed the Cracker Jack. And I get down and into this stairwell, and I go down, and it leads to the sewer, sure enough. And I, I knew it, I knew it would. And so it goes down this spiraling staircase, and it felt like I was walking forever. Felt like I was going to the bottom of the world the bottom of everything and after a long time there he was my agent lying on the ground and sure enough he had his lunch three <laughs> slugs in his belly <laughs> and I was 
I started to, to weep. He was my, you know, I hated the guy for giving me all those, those crappy <clears throat> jerk, jerk, jerk uh, store guys owner, uh, jerk soda jerk. But good, damn it, he was my partner, and uh, I don't do that to my, I don't let my partners go. So I do this old actor agent uh, un, unspoken packed right a passage you know, he he's just been down there he had three bullets in his in his stomach and he washed it down with sewage water you know i couldn't let him go like that so i whispered into his ear and i i can't tell you what i said but and i gave him a kiss on the lips and <laughs> sent him into that good night uh, well, send him so send him into that <laughs> send him into that rich under the good rich night degree. Do you, do you mean that you just pushed him into the sewer? Well, I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> That's fair. I wasn't going to take him. I went. Yeah, you went up a lot of stairs, and I think I'm, that'd be kind of a problem. Yeah. I was emotionally downtrodden. I was crestfallen. I was. Well, I would. I would some think. Some other simile. I would think. You know, I had one of the most that's famous when agents. the star was born. I had one of the most famous agents in the game who really could never do much for me, Lou Wasserman, right? And so Lou said, you know, you're ugly, you're terrible, you're Italian, is what he'd say to me. That's what he said every time. He'd be like, he'd be like, listen, I can't get you more than 15 minutes of stage time with your big Italian face because the red wine, they're going to have to edit all the red wine off your teeth. And I said, Lou, you can't just keep saying that. It's 1960s now. You can't treat me like this anymore. But, you know, he was stuck in his ways. So he kept giving me parts about, you know, getting beat and getting maimed and, you know, getting stabbed. And, you know, you know there, I, there was a couple parts he got me that were just movies he funded to torment me. You know, I played mm-hmm. I played Chief Big Spaghetti in Little Chief Big Spaghetti. Right. And I wasn't even the main role, even though it was named after me. It was just John Wayne kicking the shit out of me for 15 minutes while I was wearing a very racially inappropriate costume. But it paid $10 at the time, which back then I think is about a million dollars today or something. And as you told me, they let you sleep in the wigwam for about a month. On they set. let me sleep in it. It was more of a yurt. It was a little wider. They had a queen mattress in it, no sheets. And I said, I can get my own sheets. It's fine. They said, you can't sleep on any sheets. It's a violation of your contract. This, nobody could do it as good as you. You know, I, I've had to deal a lot in this crazy town, and I wouldn't change a single thing. You know, even though I almost died and I got stabbed needlessly, um, I would get invited to be in plays that would just, you know, produces son's birthday parties in which they'd all just throw silverware and coins at me. And, you know, you just keep your head held, head held high for all of it. And well, you think, you know what? I'm an actor. And my best friend, Regis Fieldman, he was always so proud of me working up through the ranks of his own Hollywood experience. You know, it's we, trial and error. It's guts. It's, it's grit. We, you know, it's we still meet every Sunday for stickball in the middle of the street, and the cars honk at us, and it's New York, and it's super crowded, and we can't swing or throw, but, you know, we love it. That was many, many times when someone would be looking for someone to play the the horse's ass in the uh, two-man horse costume, and I'd tell them, Fazoli Tremboni's your guy. I'll give him his, his you agent. Know, I could... I could take a needle. I'm fairly certain we were at the same audition, and you you totally destroyed me. I could never be a horse's ass as good as you, and I I went home slightly depressed. Let me give you a secret, and this is probably one of the only acting secrets that I have the privilege of giving Bertrand Ralston. See, the thing about being a horse's ass is that you can't talk, so you can't make a sound when they stick the needle in your butt. That's the only secret. Just don't make a sound. Well, like that... Uh, Bertrand. That was a joke. That's Bertrand. a little acting. Great. Bertrand was <clears throat> oh, more of the I man who rides the horse, I would say. He's he a leading rode man. I a few horses in my day. He's a classic Wait, leading were you man. The horse? Did I ride you? Did I happen to ride you, you in a motion picture? You did, and you spit. You were, you know, in between sets, you'd carry around the snifter brandy, and you spilled it all over me. My wife would get, would get so mad, saying, "You need to act," and I'm like, "I am acting. I just smell like liquor, because, you know." You know, big shot Bertrand Ralston spilling his snifter of brandy all over me while he's fighting the Comanches. That's right. The, the wet cactus trilogy of motion pictures, the, <laughs> those popular westerns. Uh, 
I remember the bunkhouse odyssey and uh, shoot the gun. Right. I remember shoot the gun really well. River. They had they asked me to play Cactus Hugger number one, and I said just call me Cactus Hugger. There's no other cactuses. Also, I don't think you're gonna put this. And you know they made me do it, and then I'm like, where are the cameras? Why are you doing this? They're like, do you want your fifty dollars or not? Go hug the cactus. Well, I and remember. And I did it because I'm a I pro. When I was directing the my western, the great the great outlaw. Um, Fazoli was playing the man who sat, he was the drunkard who'd sit at the, the front of the, the town and as the shot would zoom in and past, it said the population and you would hear a gunshot and he would change the number to make it lower. You know, one down. And that was a one shot, but it was perfect. He was perfect for it. But I, I played a lot of uh, cowboys that would like sit on the front door of the saloon and then you would see like a guy riding in while he's on all fours and the horse is on his back. And then I would take the whiskey bottle that I was holding and I'd pour it on the ground. Oh, you play the the man who would be sitting at the bar about to sip his beer during a shootout. And before he takes his sip, it gets shot out. The glass explodes. And I'm still trying to drink it. And then I, I kind of drop. And that, that ragtime piano guy was a pro because he just never stopped playing. I remember a western I was in. What was it called? It was, it was an older one, so it had a kind of a seedy, oh, yeah. seedy yes, name. Yes. It was called, a, I think it was called a sex slave driver or something. <laughs> or well, it was a low budget picture. It was probably the late twenty twenty eight or so. Well, there I was the the, the rustler, the, the rustler, the. Uh, Cattle driver, that that one turns sex slave driver, you know, uh, as the titular would say. Uh, but they also needed a uh, soda jerk. <laughs> there was a there was a soda jerk in the little town of Mutton Falls. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I served myself a drink in the same scene, <laughs> and it was very strange. And uh, I believe that's what that's where Eddie Murphy got the idea for the Nutty Professor. Good for him. I'm glad. Well, that we're the Nutty Professor was a remake, folks. as you know. Speaking of Fazoli is not familiar. Mo- uh, <laughs> do you fellas know how colored colored pictures came to be? It was trial and error. Do you speak of you know what the blacks or? Well, n- you, do, I'm getting. I believe to that he's one. speaking uh, of Tyler Perry movies. Uh, I mean, you know, the RGB, you know, uh, zero zero, you know, color blue. Oh, you know. I see. Yes, of course. Uh, yes, yes. Color, when color film. Pictures started coming into color, but uh, that's the funny that you should bring that up because we, in the early process, I've been around for a long time, and I, I was amidst the technological, you know, breakthroughs, you know, sound and. So forth. Somehow I survived. But so colored film. They were they were experimenting with you know painting the actual f- the frames and uh, so on and so mm-hmm. forth. They had all these two strips. But before that, they they uh, they thought to bring colored people, colored people in front of the as you said. But they they thought that uh, by bringing well, you know, Mexicans, Berbers, uh, what's the name? Uh, uh, Portuguese, uh, Nubians. Pakistanis. That, yes. uh, correct. Uh, all the, you know, all race, if you're a race. And they put them in front of the, Not the, main one, the like camera. Us. But unfortunately, they, with the, the footage didn't come out in color. It was just a bunch of black and white people. So that was one of the first tests. It did not turn out very well. Was it, you know, in retrospect, was not very well thought through? I you know, was just the guy in front of the camera. Well, I think you're... that, like, one of the best things about <clears throat> old Hollywood, right? And I think that's just like the, you know, back then, things were simpler, the jokes were simpler. All you needed to do back then to make audiences laugh is have a hardcore alcoholic see an imaginary mug of beer and try to grab it and miss and fall down. And you would, ha- you would win the best picture for best comedy 
like just like that on one good goof. And oh, you would just cross your it. eyes and trip. Right, you step on a rake. It's, it's perfect. You know, all you have to do is have a very obese man named Curly drink too much and then fall down uh, in a hammock, and the hammock wraps him up as a neat little package. Well, <clears throat> on a more serious note. Richard's story about his agent uh, made me think of death and gentlemen I worked with. It reminded me of a just a quick little anecdote, if you'll humor me. Um, one day, while we were shooting the Velvet Cruise, I was quite curious. My favorite producer, Len Liebelson, he called me into his trailer. He said he wanted to discuss a scene that we had to shoot with our lead actor, Barrett Fisher. And in the scene, Barrett Fisher was to be wearing a woman's dress. He outright refused to shoot the scene out of some strange masculine pride. So Len, he calls me in and he says, Bing, I'd like to show you something. Take a look at this. And what does he show me? A Luger pistol. He took it off a German during the war. And when he told me, when that no good water-headed sap Fisher gives you any tongue, you show him this, and you tell him to do his goddamn job. And what do you know? The next day, Bert Fisher was killed when a prop treasure chest <laughs> slid off of some scaffolding on the set and killed him right then and there. <laughs> And no witnesses. The craziest thing about that. No one no one saw it. X marks the spot, I guess. Oh. And the craziest thing about that is my good friend Len Liebelson, God rest his soul, he let me keep that Luger pistol, and I still carry it with me. I have it right here. As he, oh, yeah, this. you're waving that Take around, aren't you? This. It's loaded. Be careful here. Wish okay. I had one. I wish you wouldn't point it directly at me. I can look at it from ah, an Well, angle. you're used to guns being pointed at guns and weapons being pointed at you. You made a career out of it, however. Yeah, you know, and I've gotten shot a few times, too. And I think pretty sure, like, I am just, you know, I am a just a one bad accident away from being on the We Will Remember You role at the Oscars. Well, I can... I can, see my best friend I can see myself on that on that reel, on the uh, posthumous memorial reel myself or Bertrand on it, but I'm not quite sure I see you, Fazoli, and sort of an uncredited Italian. Well, let's just hope I die in a weak year, you know? If I die in a weak year, I think I can crack the top 20, because they need that to go on for at least a little bit, so all the uh, actors in the audience can do the bumps without the cameras looking at them. Well, maybe you'll uh, you'll pass when uh, someone like Jack Nicholson, the great Jack Nicholson, passes. You know, I remember working with Jack early on in the days, and he looks exactly like he did then as he does now. You know, he used to tell me these stories, right? He used to tell me these stories of, like, they're never going to find my phylactery, baby. And I just never knew what any of that meant. But he, but he said that, you know, you know, I can do this forever. Don't worry about it. You destroy it, you destroy Jack. But that ain't ever going to happen. And I'm like, Jack, what are you talking about? What's a phylactery? I'm just a kid from the Bronx. What do I know about this? <laughs> I remember that guy is into speculums. It's very strange. He's a speculum <laughs> collector. That is very you know, strange. The thing about Hollywood, and I don't know if you know this or you're so immersed in it like like myself, but it is a factory for perverts. Oh, it definitely. It is an absolute efficient machine for creating the biggest perverts on the planet. And Basically, I'm so proud. <laughs> well, you can't make it in this, this industry, in this town, without, you know... Oh, well, they call you a pervert now. Back in those days, when we were working very hard, you could be in a diner, and you could maybe pinch your waitress's bum as her tip. And it was just playful. That was known as flirting back then. And now... I would walk around make a with beers on my shoes constantly and be looking up broad skirts and stuff like that. And I said, hey, baby, don't blame me, it's the shoes. 
And then they would they would take one look at you, and they would snatch away, and they'd say, "What are you fast?" And you know, you would just you would tell them, you would tell them, "Oh, come on, baby, I'm just trying to have a good time." And they would glare at you and say, "I'll say." It's very, very fun times. Much better. And then if they slapped you, you just pretend you like it. They literally could not win. Well, I did like it. That was the that was the point. They would love it when you they slap you in the face and you do a, a whole complete 360 and well back to where we started. And then you give and then you and then you big old smoke. You raise your that was one of my favorites. You raise your hand up. Uh, you'd raise your hand up to your cheek and you'd go, "What a woman!" <laughs> I go, "What a you know, woman!" they don't make babes like they did back then. They don't have the pointy bras anymore. I miss I those pointy was... bras. I miss those pointy bras. I miss those swimsuits that were bigger than underwear. I miss those. <laughs> I miss the underwear that was shaped as a cylinder that they'd have to crawl into like a Pringles can, but wider. You know, all that is so sexy. I like that even their socks had to have frills on it so you knew they were girls' socks. Everything back then was identical between male and female. There was no. Short the hair. Sexiest thing a woman could like do a man. is faint. You had, you know, women like Audrey Hepburn who pulled it off, but for the most part, they're very stylish, very feminine. Basically, the most sexual yeah, they, thing, you know, we all know about use. the Hayes Act. The Hayes Act ah. says basically the most sexual thing a woman can do on stage is faint. And that created a whole fetish community. I remember they used to have theaters, one theater for the men that would show. Things like, you know, man stuff like westerns and prison and war movies. And then right next door, it had a big M over it. And then next door had the weepies for the for the ladies, I remember. That didn't last very long, but we well, had... Well, I was, I uh, was quite fond of, you know, the romantic films. You know, the gentleman, the lead actor was quite often around 40 years of age. Much older than the actress counterpart. Maybe... A young woman, and there was many scenes where the the actor, the lead, would grab them by the shoulders and shake them, and you go, "You just don't get it, damn it! You don't get it, do you?" And they would, you know, in their their stress, they would look them in the eye, and they would coo and go, "Oh!" And they'd bury their face into their chest, and the man, his hair before combed and slick and kept, was now messy and fraught, and it was emotional, and it showed passion. And that was film. That was the movies. You know, I remember being on set with, like, James Dean and Marlon Brando and those guys. And basically, they just look like normal guys. And then they'd be like, all right, 20 seconds to roll in. And they'd just walk over to the sink. And there'd be a, 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 a pool, a tepid water sitting in the sink. And they'd just dip their head right in it. You know, they'd just lean over and dip their head right in the sink. And they'd brush it all back. And you'd be like, wow, there's a movie star. You know, and with their wet hair, they'd slick it back with a big toothed comb so they had four ridges in their head, and then they'd go tell a woman what's up. It's just too realistic. I can't stand it. I th- wish we'd go back to the old days of just you get up at a proscenium and you shout your heart out and it's elevated reality and it's not realistic like that's that's a whole bunch of hooey you know the old days i've had enough of it the old days where you'd go to a nice red velvet restaurant and you'd have three dinners of all meat and it'd be room would be full of smoke and the jews would yell at the non-jews and everybody would be yelling back and the women would be coughing their asses off but they'd still have to be there because they you'd have to wrap your arm around them so tight so that they couldn't run away and you'd just eat steak after steak And whoever the fattest guy was, he was always the most important, but he was never on screen, you know? So you'd just be, everybody be cozying up to this guy, trying to get some Those of that money wigs. of his on the next picture, you know? Right. And you just basically eat till you dr- and drink until you fall asleep. And maybe sometimes you record something, sometimes you don't. Paul. May I ask you gentlemen a question? Oh, please. Anything for Bertrand Ralston. What would you say, you don't have to answer all at once, but what would you say is your, was your uh, least favorite project in your career? Hmm. I think the least, I'll, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll go first. The least uh, project that I, uh, that, I, that I hated the most 
was when I played, um, what was the name of that smart talking dog? He was Lester. a talking. No, he was always, always, he's always in the well. He was always getting that kid out of the well. Uh, Lassie. Anyway, I had to play Lassie's slow-witted sidekick. And basically, Lassie would bark at me, and I'd say something wrong. And then he would bite me square on the face. And then I'd be like, oh, okay. And then I'd have to follow him somewhere, you know? <laughs> but the whole thing is, is there was a stereotype that started in, in, in Hollywood from that. Because it was early in the you know late 30s, early 40s, where it... There was just a stereotype that Italians didn't wear shoes anywhere. Because I'd constantly be walking into restaurants with Lassie, and they'd be like, get out of here. I'm like, no, he's a smart dog. He's fine. They'd be like, not the dog, you. And, you know, I'd have to, I'd immediately go cross-eyed and fall backwards, and then Lassie would just go rescue somebody, and then I'd wake up and pretend I did it. But I'd say that was probably the most dehumanizing experience of my life. So, you know, that's probably when a lot of my drinking problems, marriage problems, all that stuff kind of started from that goddamn dog. I would say my fa- my least favorite project was Oliver's film that was never released. It was made, but it was never fully made. It was the film The Arabian Rug, and I would have Fazoli as my star. Now, the final cut was three hours long. The rough cut was seven hours long. And the whole thing, well, to be short, was an absolute mess. I thought it was fine. Well, it was you my have first leading now. role, and because of it, it was my last leading role. I've erased it. I've erased it from my records. I mean, you were. made me do. Whoa, that's a nice Arabian rug. You made me do that take literally uh, two hundred times. I didn't write the screenplay. It was not my words. Whoa, that's a nice Arabian rug you got there. He loves it. I, he loved it, but Bertrand. Please, what was your least favorite project? That's a very good question. To ask me that is like, who's your least favorite child? (laughs) That's a good question. Who is your least favorite child? That I'm a a bachelor. I got a kid named Spanky who's got herpes, and I'd say he's my least favorite (laughs) child. Well, my least favorite project, I think, is an old, an old uh, picture. Was it uh, the saucer and the ladle? No, that was that was a. I believe it was. Uh, I believe you played the ladle in that one. It was uh, a, a film where, through a, a, uh, through my contract, it was, it was very fine print. I didn't have the right, the correct lenses to read. And I needed a job to buy those lenses, so I uh, <clears throat> I signed on the dotted line. And but in my contract, I don't remember which studio I was working for. Maybe maybe I was a uh, I was out of Shang Shang at that time, and I was at <laughs> Suck and Fuck. So in a little bit of my contract, it said I should do anything and anything. Under anything the director asked me to, or the producer. The producers were ahead of the game back then. And uh, I had to get a sex change for a film. <laughs> and they made me, they paid for it, of course. I, I would, the, the film, I believe, was called Both Sides Now. I had to, it was a spy movie. That's right. It was a spy flick, and I had to infiltrate an all-women, an all-female, uh, you know, complex. You know, full of henchmen. They're all women, and they're all karate chopping, and etc. And there's a big cackling woman, and a creatress, huge, you know, a Wagnerian, you know. But I had to infiltrate, and the only way I could get in is by becoming a female. So throughout the course of the movie, I go to a specialist, and and I actually 100% was female for for that picture. So you can't say I was never dedicated to my vocation. But the thing is, 
I, I come, I, I'm here with you now as a male, but they also paid to have corrective sex change mm-hmm. surgery. Wow. So I, here I am, perfectly the same. However, I have different goods. These are not mine. <laughs> These down here. These are not. Those right there, the ones you, oh Sorry. man, you can put them away. Sorry, my heart. Yeah, please. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. Making the room stink. That was my least favorite I would say that's project. the most committed I've seen anyone to. It was, and it was only Fred. a modest success. It was not So they cannot take it away from you of the lengths you would go to, which I said before, you're the greatest. With that, I appreciate that. that, I see you in the same eyes. Thank you, my friend. My dear friend. I would say... On that I'm so note, happy to see you again. On that note, this we reunion. probably have... Yeah, gentlemen, I, I, don't, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but we're, we're, we're late for our reservation at Chino's Cigar Bistro. I like it. It eats... I need it. They got the whiskey oh, all like nice, humidor. waiting for us, and they got the stogies sitting there waiting. And my buddy Regis, he's sitting there, he's tapping his clock, he's going, "Where are these guys?" Well, we better get moving, but I would wager that most people are probably very shocked, possibly amused, and they found, hopefully, our stories were enlightening to them in a time long gone. A time to never return. A time when the films were films. That's show business, folks. Mm-hmm.